Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book about some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. My guest for this episode is Jules Boykoff, Chair of the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University. Jules has been a guest on the podcast before, to talk about his ongoing research into the politics and economics of the Olympic Games. For this visit, we are talking about Jules' most recent book, Activism and the Olympics, Descent at the Games in Vancouver and London, published by Rutgers University Press in 2014. In the book, Jules looks at the different groups that have organized demonstrations or other expressions of protest against the actions of the International Olympic Committee, the organizing committees of specific games, and the corporations that sponsor the games. Political protest surrounding the Olympic Games is nothing new. At the start of his book, Jules discusses the organized protest against the participation of apartheid-ruled South Africa in the 1960s. As we discuss in the interview, dissent against the Olympics is becoming more pronounced, and it has been successful in raising awareness of the costs of the Games. In fact, we start our conversation by talking about the questions surrounding the 2022 Winter Games and the 2024 Summer Games. Here's my interview with Jules Boykoff. I'm happy to have Jules Boykoff back on the podcast. Jules, welcome back to New Books and Sports. Thank you, Bruce. Great to be here. So we had you on the podcast back in the winter of this year, uh, right around the start of the Sochi Winter Games, and uh, we talked about your previous book, uh, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games. Uh, And before we get into talking about your latest book um, about activism and the Olympics, um, let's let's catch up on some of the events because it has been an eventful year with with the IOC and the uh, the broader Olympic movement and and so I'll ask you first about uh, the ongoing issues and and the controversy really surrounding uh, the bids for the 2022 Winter Olympics. Have you been been keeping an eye on this and and how does it connect with your research interests? Absolutely, been keeping an eye on it. Yes, and. It's been fascinating to look at the dwindling interest in the 2022 Winter Olympics. And I think it's indicative of the possibility of the Olympic movement sort of descending into a slow motion crisis. I mean, fewer and fewer cities are game for hosting the games, if you will. Um, bitter enthusiasm has basically fizzled. I mean, you, anytime you put a referendum up to a city who was interested in the Olympics, they've basically said, no thanks, whether it's Krakow, whether it's Munich, 
whether it's Stockholm, whether it's the cantons in Switzerland that were possibly going to host the 2022 Winter Olympics. Then you had recently the leaders in Oslo, political leaders in Oslo saying, no thanks, we don't want it. And that basically has left two cities remaining. It's either going to be in Beijing, China, or Almaty, Kazakhstan. And neither of these, are, of course, are known for being bastions of human rights or democracy. So this has got to have the International Olympic Committee a little bit nervous. From what you know about the, since you're an expert on the Olympics, have you, have you noticed any shutters within, or the hints of shutters? I guess, uh, I guess following the IOC is kind of like following the Kremlin back in the uh, in the old Soviet days, right? In that you have to kind of read through the the statements and so forth to see what's really going on within within the IOC. Have you been able to detect anything? Interesting comparison, Bruce. <laughs> I would say that, that there is some panic that's detectable if you look between the lines. So when you look at the President Thomas Bach, who was elected president of the International Olympic Committee only in September 2013, he set to work immediately making serious reforms to the Olympic movement. At least on the surface, they look serious. We can talk about them in more detail if you like. So he made these recommendations, 20 plus 20, so Agenda 2020, 40 recommendations and many of them are very much meant to address the issues around money that will widen the, the hopefully for him, for his sake or his perspective, the, the pool of applicants who are willing to throw in for the games. Because with each one of those examples that I gave before, Krakow, Munich, etc., the reason why they were rejected is because the games have become so expensive. And the Sochi Olympics, you know, we talked, as you said, right at the beginning of the Sochi Olympics, those cost $51 billion, the most expensive Olympics ever, more than all the Winter Olympics combined, all the previous Winter Olympics. So that has basically scared off a number of the possible applicants to host the Games. And so Thomas Bach has said in his public statements, oh, the Olympics are going great, but we need to make changes while things are going well. We don't want to have things start to go bad and then be forced to make changes. We want to make changes when we're still in the driver's seat. Well, I read that as very much he's aware of the fact that there are some serious problems right now within the Olympic movement. He's trying to put the happiest face possible on it, of course, um, but he realizes that there is a crisis and, and he's in charge of trying to solve it. And then another issue that's unfolding right now is the decision of the U.S. Olympic Committee to bid for the 2024 Summer Olympics. So um, just this past week, four cities made presentations to the USOC to be chosen as the as the bid city. Uh, Los Angeles uh, looking for its its third Olympics, San Francisco, Boston, and Washington D.C. And the USOC will make its decision after after the new year. So what did you notice in, in following the, the bidding process in the USOC's meetings? Well, it's interesting because in terms of the topic of the book we're talking about today, activism in the Olympics, I would say the most vociferous activism that cropped up in opposition to hosting the Olympics certainly was in Boston. You had a real organized, you have a real organized effort in Boston. They even made their plea in Redwood City, where the United States Olympic Committee was meeting just earlier this week. So they've been smart. They've been on the ground. They've had a media campaign. And since the International Olympic Committee does take into consideration 
whether a city's population is in support of the bid, it sort of behooves the U.S. Olympic Committee to listen to the Boston activists. Now, the other things that we've been seeing is San Francisco putting forth yet another bid. They just host so hosted an event not too long ago, a big, a big sort of sailing event, elite sailing event um, called the America's Cup. And so they have experience with mega events, if on a very smaller scale. And, you know, they their experience was that they were told it was going to be this huge economic pick-me-up. They were told that it was going to bring 9,000 jobs to the area. They were told that it was going to be private donor-sponsored. And what they got was much less. I mean, there was much less economic impact than, than was anticipated. Only less than 4,000 jobs instead of 9,000 jobs. Um, it ended up being that the, the government had to kick in quite a few millions of dollars to make this thing happen. And it was all done for this guy, Larry Ellison, a billionaire CEO of, of Oracle, who was sort of the driving force behind bringing the event to the Bay. So, you know, people in San Francisco, you don't have to have a super long memory. I mean, that was just in, in 2010 when the city was given all these promises and they just recently hosted that. So there's a lot of sort of questioning going on, certainly in the media in San Francisco. Then you look at D.C., and they have gotten a lot of the big people on board there, a lot of the big sports honchos, the owner of the Capitals and the Wizards. They've got a lot of local politicos that have signed on to, to support the games there. And there's they have, a, they have a decent chance, I would say. I mean, they certainly have the security infrastructure already in place. And, in fact, people have said from D.C. who are supporting the bid that, hey, we have the security that you would need for the Olympics because D.C. is sort of in perpetual lockdown. But then there's L.A., which you mentioned, and a lot of people viewed them as sort of the front runner of the four in the sense that, like you said, there's that tradition. They hosted in 1932 and they hosted in 1984. Um, and they're also good at sort of working the local governments to get everything they can from them. I mean, that's certainly what happened in 1984. They, they got the policing basically for free for the Olympics. They figure out how to work the subsidies and keep the prices relatively low. And so I would say right now that they're probably the front runner in the eyes of most people who follow this stuff closely. So you'd mentioned the opposition or the, the concerns coming out of San Francisco about uh, will will the city get the benef- uh, the promised economic benefits of, of hosting the Olympics? And um, uh, is this the issue that's uh, that's really rising in terms of both the the Winter Olympics in 2022 and and the Summer Olympics in 2024? Is these concerns so not so much by by dissenting groups, but by you know people in politics, people in business that that we're not going to get uh, the promised payout, and that this is just going to be a big waste of money. I do think that has become one of the more predominant narratives. It's just not worth the money and that all these promises about jobs and economic growth really aren't supported by economists anymore. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where politicians could stand at the lectern and say, oh, this is going to create lots of jobs. There's going to be a huge uptick in the in the GDP. We're going to be just doing great here. And no one would ever question them. But there's been a real shift in the way we've talked about the economics of the Olympics, thanks in, in large part to the diligent work of academic, independent economists who've done longitudinal studies that have found that, in fact, the Olympics don't generate all the economic promises that that they've long been heralded to bring. So 
I think that the politicos will stand up and, and have a more difficult time getting away with it. I mean, I think what's in, indicative of this is if you look at even somebody like Mitt Romney, who was former presidential candidate for the Republican Party, as your listeners know, and who also came in and really was sort of rescued the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City after the massive scandal that racked that Olympics. And even he recently said that the Olympics are not a money-making opportunity. They asked him as the former governor of Massachusetts, well, what do you think of this Boston bid? He said, hey, I think it's great. If you like sports, it'll be a lot of fun. But this is not a money-making opportunity. And I think that points to the way that the discourse has shifted in the last just few years. And so, yeah, that's got to be a concern for the people that are talking about bringing the games. They don't want to start making a bunch of false promises that they can't fulfill. Now, on the flip side, if you look at the organizing committees for each one of these cities, look who's on them. Oftentimes, it's people in construction, it's property developers. Those people actually have a good chance of benefiting from the Olympics. So there are certain parties that tend to benefit from hosting the Olympics, but it's typically those who already are doing pretty well in the first place. And so you'll see oftentimes support from the construction industry, especially if they're well-connected people in construction. Uh, You'll see support from property developers. This is a great chance to make a lot of money for them. But, you know, they're they're few and far between, and that, that money does not, of course, trickle out to the wider population, who oftentimes picks up a big chunk of the tab through taxpayer money. So we can turn here to to your book, and and this actually connects to what we've been talking about, connects to a topic that you discuss at the start of your book, an an interesting topic, and that's the the little-known story of the successful bid by Denver to host the 1976 Winter Olympics, and then Denver's withdrawal from actually hosting the games before the games were held. So this is, uh, as I said, it's it's a little-known story. Uh, you you bring it out, and it, and it speaks to many of the concerns about the Olympics that people have today, and it's uh, kind of your, your, your starting platform for talking about dissent in the Olympics. Yes, I think it's a fascinating story. So in May 1970, the International Olympic Committee selected Denver to host the 1976 Winter Games, and... You know, upon winning winning that bid contest, the Colorado governor at the time, his name was John Love, he said, oh, this is going to be a great thing for Colorado. The Denver's Chamber of Commerce got behind it, of course, and we're going to be seen as this international city, which is something you often hear from winners of the Olympics, um, if you will, winners, you know, depends how you look at that. But um, so what happened was uh, there was not everybody shared this kind of optimistic sentiment that the governor had and the Chamber of Commerce had, and they were very concerned that hosting the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, would lead to the despoliation of a lot of the environmental terrain. They were concerned about the costs of the Olympics as well, and they didn't want to just kick in a bunch of their bonding power to the um, this Olympic this Olympic Games. So they ended up fighting back. And I've spent some time in the archives of Avery Brundage. He was the International Olympic Committee president from 1952 to 1972. He's a Chicago business tycoon who sort of worked his way up the IOC chain, eventually, as I say, becoming president. I was in his archives, and he has folders of letters from people from Colorado, including elected officials, including environmentalists, and many others who are saying, please, please, please take the games away from Denver. And so activists in Denver and the surrounding areas eventually created this referendum that said that they would not give any money toward the Olympics, and they put it on the ballot. 
And in November 1972, the activists won. And no money was going to be given from Colorado to the Olympic machine. And the Olympics realized they needed to move it. So they did. They moved it to Innsbruck, Austria. That's where the 1976 Winter Olympics happened. And so it's a real rare moment. It's the only moment in Olympic history where the Games have been awarded to a city only to have the inhabitants of that city and the surrounding area say, no thanks, and then the IOC being forced to move it. So it's a really interesting moment in the history of the Games. So I don't know if this is related then. Um, you look at the, the history of dissent and, and politics with the IOC, and, and one of the things you talk about is, is the IOC has, this, um, has long had this tendency to, to um, argue that, that what it does and that sports itself are, are apolitical, that the games will not involve, will not involve politics. And, and something in particular that you look at in this regard are a set of rules that the IOC set down in 1974 regarding political and commercial activities, and, and uh, this was really striking in your book. So, can you talk about the context for these for these new rules and what the IOC was aiming to do with them? Sure. Well, the changes in the International Olympic Committee's Olympic Charter are pretty much a direct response to athlete activism, especially that happened in 1968. John Carlos, Tommy Smith on the podium, putting their hands into the Mexico City sky, their fists into the Mexico City sky. And then also in 1972, we saw a couple additional athletes, uh, Matthews and Collett, standing on the podium, kind of looking slightly disinterested. And the International Olympic Committee really wanted to sort of tighten up its strictures on what athletes could and couldn't do. And so through time, they changed one of the aspects of the charter that basically forbids any sort of athlete activism or activism of any sort, whether you're an athlete or not, inside or around Olympic venues. And so that's sort of been changed and tightened up through time. And it's what in today's charter is Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter that prohibits that sort of thing. It's interesting, too, that part of that exact same provision outlaws um, it calls it calls it propaganda, but it also throws in advertising, and so you can't have this sort of renegade advertising coming into the arenas, the venues, and outside of the venues. So you see this sort of double move on the part of the International Olympic Committee. On one hand, a sort of blunt dissent; on the other hand, to also blunt the possibility of their sponsors not maximizing their impact in and around the venues. So it's it's an interesting set of changes that happen through time, but that's basically what we have now on our hands is this rule in the charter that forbids um, political activity on the part of athletes. What's interesting to me, if you look back to Sochi, is there has been an acknowledgement that this is basically fantasy, you know, that we can't, <laughs> that we can have politics and, and sports not mix. And in fact, no less than Thomas Bach recently said, you know, we've long argued, he, he said, that politics and sports shouldn't mix. But you know what? That's just not the case. You know, I, I found that actually quite refreshing when he said that recently, that we have to acknowledge that politics and sports are absolutely intertwined. Does that mean they're going to start saying that athletes can speak up for all sorts of various causes where I can't breathe shirts, you know, in, in the arena? Um, no, probably not. But what we saw in Sochi in the face of what was clearly laws passed by the host government, at least the national government in Russia, 
uh, that were anti-gay, that cut mightily against the anti-discrimination principles, the fundamental principles of Olympism and the Olympic Charter, we saw that the International Olympic Committee had to move. And in fact, they acknowledged that there were some political shenanigans going on in Sochi, and they allowed athletes to speak out at press conferences. They made a specific allowance for athletes to speak out about political matters such as the anti-gay law that had passed in press conferences. Now, they didn't uh, open up the Olympic Charter where they could do it in and around venues, but they did allow athletes to do to speak out with their thoughts about these anti-gay laws and other repressive measures that what Russia was putting forth around the Sochi Olympics. And I, I see that as, as an important shift and the International Olympic Committee showing a little bit of flexibility there. So do you see um, <clears throat> perhaps what will happen in the future is that the IOC admitting that that politics will be present will try to uh, control politics or the entrance of politics into the games, control the places where politics can happen in the same way that, you know, now, of course, we do have plenty of commercial activities at, at Olympic venues, but they're tightly controlled by, by the IOC. Yes, I think they absolutely are going to continue to control the politics that happens. I mean, after all, I mean, if, if you ask me, there already are politics thrumming through the venues. I mean, look, when we have the opening ceremonies, the countries are marched in behind a flag, all with the same uniform. You know, that's incredibly political. Who gets to be a nation? Who doesn't get to qualify as a nation within the Olympic movement? Those are absolutely political decisions. And so, um, yes, we can. I think we can expect to see the IOC try to tightly control their their brand. I mean, that's the way that they see it. If you read their documents, they're talking about their brand, and they're trying to protect their brand while simultaneously come up with new ways of proliferating that brand. I mean, one of those I mentioned before is this notion that they just passed in, as part of Olympic Agenda 2020, this idea of having a, an Olympic channel that's kind of year-round on TV, um, pro- promoting what they call Olympism and the spirit of the Olympics and all that kind of thing. So they're trying to come up with new ways of controlling politics, but also controlling advertising. So, Jules, you have two main case studies in your book, the, uh, the Vancouver Winter Olympics in, in 2010 and then the London Summer Games in, in 2012. And you were at both games, correct? I was up there in Vancouver, and I was in London during the games. Yes. Okay, so let's start with Vancouver. What were the what were the principal issues uh, you saw in terms of of activist groups um, that were working at at Vancouver? Well, I first heard about activism in Vancouver around issues of state repression because I have a lot of friends in Vancouver. I'm only a six hour drive. I live in Portland, Oregon. It's only a six-hour drive up to Vancouver, and a lot of my friends up there were talking about the new fancy weaponry that the state was securing in order to protect the Olympic spectacle. And so they were getting a medium-range acoustic device, for example. Um, This is a military-grade weapon that's used in war zones like Iraq and elsewhere. And people were rightly quite worried about that. There was more than a 1,000 surveillance cameras that were basically being pegged to every single post in town. And so, you know, that was, and there was going to be fighter jets and helicopters, and there was going to be all that kind of thing. And, and my friends were very concerned. They'd know, they knew that I had written about state repression for the last decade or so before those Olympics. And so they were notifying me and saying, hey, this is right in your wheelhouse. You got to come <laughs> here and check this stuff out. It's incredible. 
And so that's what I did, actually. I went up there and I looked at some of the repressive measures that were being put in place, some of the extraordinary rules and laws that were being promulgated to support the Olympics. I talked to civil libertarians. The British Columbia Civil Liberties Association was really hugely involved in all this. So I interviewed a number of their lawyers and their staff members. And I interviewed activists, I interviewed First Nations activists, and I interviewed a lot of different people who are very concerned with these measures that were being in place to basically squelch dissent. I mean, they weren't just worried about it during the Olympic moment, but what they were worried about was that the, the state forces were going to keep these arms, they were going to keep these special weapons after the games as well. So this sort of intensified policing would become the new normal. So I went up there and I and I talked to a lot of people who I already knew and people who I hadn't known but got to meet through talking about state repression. And I realized that there was a whole lot more going on with the Olympic story up there and that it was a really interesting moment of activism where you had First Nations activists who were teaming up with um, these civil libertarians who are teaming up with anarchists, who are teaming up with media activists, who are teaming up with poets into this really fascinating uh, rainbow of dissent, if you will. And it was a really effective one as well. And you had people who didn't typically work together on their issues who were brought together because of the Olympics coming to Vancouver. But at the same time, you have a line in your book that, that dissent at the Vancouver Games was not, was not a movement. It was a moment. So what do, you, what do you mean by that? Right, yeah. So I'm, I argue, one of the arguments in the book is that, yes, when it comes to the Olympics, we don't have an anti-Olympic movement, if you will, because a, a movement would mean, according to social movement scholars who defined it as such, it would mean it would move through time. It would be sustained through time. And you don't really see that with the Olympics and, and anti-Olympic activism. You see it pop up in the city that happens to be hosting the games, but you don't see this sort of tr knowledge transfer, if you will, that you see from the actual Olympics themselves. I mean, one or two or a handful of activists will go to the next place where the Olympics are, would take place, and they'll let them know what their experience was. But it's not like it's really a movement. It just basically pops up for a moment, and you have groups who are active in the city who come together, who are part of movements, who come together during the Olympic moment, but it's not a movement of movements, as a lot of people talk about it in the global justice movement. It's more of a moment of movements. So the movements around town come together for the Olympic moment and often team up in ways they didn't before. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, follow up on your, your point to your friend's observation about uh, the expansion of the uh, the security state in, in Vancouver. Um, so, and this is something you talk about in, in London as well. So presumably the, um, the buildup in security was intended to, uh, prevent a terrorist attack, uh, I would gather. But, but were these security forces, police and so forth, uh, were they directed toward other, I don't want to use the word targets, but, uh, other sources of instability uh, rather than simply terrorism? Well, that was the big concern in Vancouver and in London, that the state forces say, oh, we need all this special equipment and whatnot to fight terrorism. 
And then when the terrorists don't show up, thankfully in both cases they, they didn't, but when the terrorists don't show up, well, the activists do show up. And there are the police with all their special equipment. So, yes, it's sort of a, a bait and switch, if you will, where the, the state gets all the special equipment and it's they have it there to use if they so desire against activists who show up in the streets. And then they do, and something you do talk about in cases of both Vancouver, but especially London, is that uh, you do have a policing of space, that uh, um, these security forces really limit areas of the city where, where activities can take place. Absolutely. I mean, there are special zones set up. They tried to do it in Vancouver, where they set up special zones uh, where you were supposed to, there were supposed to be free speech zones, but those were quickly fought against by activists who said, "Hey, I thought Canada was a free speech zone." And so, <laughs> you know, that didn't work out so well. Um, they they tried to police even private space. Like take the example of Vancouver, where they passed a city ordinance that was called by people up there the sign bylaw, and the sign bylaw basically said that. It, you could not hang up signs, even in your private home. You could not hang up signs that were anti-Olympics or that did not celebrate the Olympics. And so if you hung up, say, a sign in your house, Bruce, in Vancouver that said, you know, I don't really think the Olympics are all that cool, the, the security forces could notify you and you would have to take it down within 24 hours. And if you did not take down your sign, they could come into your private abode and take it down for you. I mean, that is the extreme control of space, even private space. And so that was absolutely fought against by, by activists and civil libertarians in, in Vancouver. So as I was reading, reading your chapters about Vancouver, I was thinking... Uh, well, I thought, you know, the conventional picture of Vancouver is that it's this, this prosperous, progressive city, and, and you see an entirely different picture coming out of your chapters on, on the Vancouver Games. Vancouver is a fascinating city. You know, it's it's extremely expensive city to live in, for starters. It, it's deemed highly livable on one hand, but also, you know, so many people are priced out there as well. And you know, right in the center of Vancouver is this area called the downtown east side of Vancouver, and it is a poverty-wracked area. I mean, it is the poorest postal code outside of Aboriginal reserves in Canada. And, I mean, if you go down into this area, it's an intense place where people are living very, very difficult lives, where addiction is is visible on the street level. And so, you know, that was another thing that the organizers of Vancouver were concerned about because they knew that the global media were going to descend on Vancouver. And so some of the other special laws that were passed were designed to control that space on the downtown east side, not necessarily to help people of the downtown east side overcome their addiction issues or their, or their lack of housing issues, but rather just basically to sort of brush those people under the rug. So they had... Um, special laws set up where they could take people off the streets and put them in jail under particular um, circumstances, like, and, and it was called by activists the Olymp Olympic Kidnapping Act. I mean, basically, it was sort of the so-called quote-unquote cleansing of the area to make it look palatable to the global audience that would be seeing it on their television sets during the Olympic Games. And so it's another good example of how the state government and the, the pro provincial government basically t um, took measures into their own hands and set up laws that that would 
allow the police to sweep these issues of homelessness and poverty under the rug to make it look as pretty as possible. Let's turn to London, Jules. And uh, um, once again, in, in London, as in Vancouver, there was a uh, an undeniable, this, this swell of political and journalistic opinion in favor of the games. And this is something you talk about, that, that there really was no room in the general discourse to, to be an opponent of the Olympics. Well, in the, in the lead up to the Olympics, it was really interesting places like the guardian. If you looked at the guardian online, there was all sorts of criticism being put forth about the Olympics. But as soon as the actual Olympics started, you could just see it tighten up on the, on the guardians webpage. I mean, there was, everybody just sort of got in line and said, well, it's here. So we might as well enjoy it and just enjoy the sport and get on with it. Uh, one thing that was really interesting to me about about uh, London, I did, as part of the book, I did a quantitative media analysis of who got in the news during the Olympic Games to put forth dissent. And it turns out that union activists really made the most of the Olympic moment. And they were quite effective at, first of all, getting actual gains for their rank and file, uh, and second of all, getting quite positive media attention during the Olympic moment, before, during, and even after the Olympic moment. And I wanted to ask about that in particular because uh, uh, that was interesting. And you look not only at media in the UK, but also in the US and their coverage of Olympic descent. And, and I was surprised, and I think you were surprised too, that, that there was a, there's been a good amount of coverage of Olympic activists and that it's actually quite favorable. Yes, I was very surprised. I mean, as someone who's done quite a bit of research on media coverage of activism, the typical story is that activists are viewed as either violent or disruptive or freaky or strange or out of tune with the general public. And so when you look at the way that activists were covered in London, it's it's strikingly different. I mean, the, the most common frame that I found in the quantitative media analysis that I did was the principled grievance frame. In other words, that the activists had principled grievances and were putting them forth in a, in a reasonable way. More than half of the frames that I found in the newspaper articles, uh, were more than half of them were the principled grievance frame. And this is so vastly different than other studies done on various activist groups of all stripes from different countries um, and from England, from the United States, from Canada, from other countries as well. Um, certainly there was the disruption frame as well, but that was part of the goal. It wasn't so, – so let me take a step back and say one of the groups that got a lot of the media coverage was the taxi drivers. And they were very upset, many of the taxi drivers, that there were going to be some 250 or so special VIP driving lanes that the taxi cab drivers were not going to be able to use. Basically, those 250 miles or so of lanes were going to be for the International Olympic Committee, for the athletes, for the medics, and also for corporate sponsors like Coca-Cola and Dow that I mentioned before. They could drive in the special lanes, but not the taxi drivers. And so the taxi drivers were livid, you know, having, again, the control of space that was boxing out their way of making their livelihood. And so they would often... Uh, basically have all the cabs pull up in front of where there was a meeting of the London Organizing Committee and just totally clog up the area around the meeting and disrupt 
uh, the traffic in that area. So yes, there was a disruption frame, but it was a tactical move on the part of taxicab union activists to sort of disrupt space. And even the the disruption frame that was often used on the protesters was one of sort of uh, grudging admiration as a sort of effective tactic. So overall, I mean, the findings that I, that I came across in doing this analysis were were quite strikingly different than the way that activists are typically covered in the press. So in looking at the emergence of, of dissent in, in London, as well as in Vancouver, I want to ask about the, the role of the IOC in, in stoking opposition. It, it seems that a good amount of the anger... Uh, was not directed at the games per se of, of having a bunch of athletes get together and compete, but uh, to the tendency of the International Olympic Committee to to basically lord it over the people of a city. Absolutely, I mean, in fact, you know, the activists who I interviewed, almost all of them were sports fans, and they made it clear to me that they weren't against the Olympics per se. They weren't against the athletes at all. They were against the way that the International Olympic Committee, in coordination with the local organizing committee, were essentially inflicting the Olympics on their local town. And so I had countless activists trying to make it clear to me that, hey, I love sports, you know, football, soccer is my favorite sport. I love watching hockey. I just think that it's ridiculous that we have to pay such huge sums for this thing. So a lot of the critiques that came were critical of the International Olympic Committee for not kicking in enough money and basically relying on the backs of taxpayers to fund this 16, 17-day party in their town. And so, yes, much of the much of the ire was focused on the International Olympic Committee, the local organizing committee, and a lot of activist groups, you know, take it as an opportunity to sort of engage in what some scholars call piggyjacking. I mean, the whole eye, the eyes of the world are, are on the Olympics. I mean, we often chant as activists that the whole world is watching. With the Olympics, it really practically is, thanks to the global TV audience. And so you have a lot of activists who say, this is a great chance for me to get my message out there about the issue that I care about. And so in Vancouver, for example, I mean, one of the most prominent and, and thriving movements uh, was all around um, First Nations activism and how one of the predominant slogans there was no Olympics on stolen native land. And what people meant by that was that the land was unseated. There weren't treaties governing the land upon which the Olympic Games were happening. Basically, this guy, to take a step back in history, this guy named Douglas, who was supposed to engage in all this treaty making in British Columbia, I don't know what he was doing, but he certainly wasn't making treaties. And so you have all this land that is unseated. And so indigenous people say this is actually our land that you're on. This is an ongoing issue around sovereignty in, in British Columbia. And the Olympics were basically a platform that where more people could learn about that and figure out what was actually going on there. And you saw similar things in places like London, where, where I, I charted the work of this really creative group of activists who were anti-BP activists, and and they basically went into the uh, Stratford-upon-Avon Shakespeare Company, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and they dressed up in Shakespeare garb, and they took the stage before the um, Royal Shakespeare Company play. BP is one of the predominant sponsors of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And they would get up there looking like Shakespeare characters, and they would deliver this beautiful soliloquy 
sounding a lot like Shakespeare. You know, they took a lot of time and really wrote these things very carefully. And they delivered these soliloquies and said at the end, you know, so get down with BP and all this about how BP is terrible and they shouldn't be a sponsor. And if you believe that we're right, please rip out the BP logo out of the back of your program. Well, you know, BP was a sponsor of the Olympics. And ironically, it was a sustainability sponsor at the London Olympics, strangely enough. Um, and so this group used that moment to bring a lot more attention to the BP sponsorship of the theater, which they were opposed to from the beginning. So you see that a lot of times with Olympics. And that's why I'm talking about it being a moment of movements instead of a movement of movements, because it's a moment where these movements, in that case, an environmental movement, comes and uses the Olympics as a stage and tries to piggy jacket, if you will, or at least piggyback off of it to raise awareness around their issue. And activists were pretty effective at that around the London Olympics in a lot of ways. Well, Jules, I want to wrap things up by, by looking back to the, the topic we, we discussed at the start in this, this past year in Olympic politics. And uh, so even though dissenters at the Olympics have been uh, – um, you know, it's it's been this this varied group of, of different movements that come together for for this short time. Uh, do you see their work as having a direct impact in these larger concerns we've seen this year about the Olympics? I do think that the activism that we've seen in recent Olympics is having an effect on the way the International Olympic Committee has to talk about their business. It's no longer business as usual with them. I think it's also there, there are, there's a much stronger thread of critical scholarship that's being done on the Olympics that has really changed the way the discussion is happening. I think that among journalists, there's many critical journalists who are out there doing work, really important work from Dave Zirin to Owen Gibson to many, many others out there who are really drawing a spotlight for the general public. And I do think it, it is changing the way that the International Olympic Committee is forced to operate. So, yes, I think that we're in the midst of really important changes with the Olympic movement, and it's kind of exciting to be part of that right now. It's a great chance to reshape the Games in a way that, that we think is more equitable. Jules, I'll finish up by asking, what, what are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, right now I am writing a book for Verso Books on the political history of the Olympic Games, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm about halfway through it, and right now I'm writing the chapter on the Cold War and the Olympics, and so that's really the main thing that I'm working on right now. I'm also doing a deeper study into the 1976 Denver Olympics that we were talking about before. I've gone back to the Avery Brundage archive and gotten copies of all the letters that activists and politicians had written to Brundage during that time period and the ones that Brundage wrote back. So I guess those are the two main things that I'm working on right now. And I have to ask about Brundage because every time I see uh, uh, people who've done research in his archives, uh, you know, and there have been a few books based on those, those sources – he just strikes me as, as really a nasty, nasty guy. Well, he's a fascinating guy. I mean, on one hand... You're, you're too kind, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, there there have been plenty of people that have, have said all sorts of things about him. I mean, after all, the guy's nickname was Slavery Avery among a lot of the <laughs> athletes. So, um, But, you know, if you look at, on one hand, he's saying publicly about how the Olympics and politics shouldn't mix. He was one of the big purveyors of that myth. And then on the other hand, when you get into his papers, he was getting ready to write his autobiography. And he has files in his archives that say 
politics, you know, from a certain time period. And boy, did he have some crazy things in those political files. He he was talk he talked about how um, you know we didn't need to help the lazy and the shiftless in society. He was actually in some of his papers he argued against the use of medicine because it kept the weak alive and stuff like that. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. And and he also would say things that were actually quite sympathetic to Hitler and the Nazis, saying how they got kind of a bad rap in the 1930s. It wasn't all bad over there uh, under the Nazi regime. So. You know, he, he's a real mixed bag. And so on one hand, he says no politics. On the other hand, he's got these incredibly fascinating political files. And I'm definitely going to bring some of his um, kind of zanier political commentary into the book that I'm writing right now. Okay. All right. We'll look forward to that. The zany Avery Brundage. Thank, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jules, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. You've been listening to an interview with Jules Boykoff about his book, Activism and the Olympics, Descent at the Games in Vancouver and London, published by Rutgers University Press in 2014. You can read the writing of Jules Boykoff and past guests on New Books and Sports in the new online journal, The Allrounder, which features the work of academics and journalists on different aspects of world sport. Go to theallrounder.com. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and biography. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subject you're interested in. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.